everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. We're going to continue our discussion today on the problem passages, and if you don't know what that means, most of the Bible is pretty amenable. Most of the Bible, when you read through it, is really not that bad. You read about a loving Savior, you read about a God who stepped down from glory, you read about all these things and how he came as a baby so he could understand what it was to start out as the weakest, as we do, go through all of life, understand all the sin we went through, and yet never sin, die for us on the cross, be raised from the dead, ascend to heaven, send the Holy Spirit, all of these wonderful things in the Bible that really are perfectly fine with us. But every now and then you come across a passage that once you read it, it seems to throw the brakes on how you understand God. It seems to throw a wrench into the whole concept of the character of God. You read it and it just doesn't seem to fit with how you've looked at God your whole life. And that kind of creates a problem. Because either the Bible is the word of God or it's not the word of God. I like when people try and make an excuse. Well, not all of it's the word of God. You know, just just some of it's the word of God. Well, if only some of it's the word of God, how do you know which parts are the parts that are the word of God? How do you know which parts are the ones he's actually saying and which parts aren't the ones that he actually wants you to pay attention to? That's why it's important. You either take the whole thing or none of it. Now, that doesn't mean on day one you become a Christian or even throughout your whole life you have to understand all of it. It just means that God, even if I don't get all of it, even if I don't understand all of it, that's not a problem with your Bible. That's just an issue of you taking your time showing me. It might not even be a problem with you that God has when he's trying to show you the Bible. Just some people he goes ahead and gives them an accelerated path. Some people he takes them on a slower path. It has nothing to do with whether or not someone has a better relationship with God. But when you come to these passages that seem to be contrary to the person of God, what do you do? Because many times we either just toss them out to the side and we say, well, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to handle this. I don't want to, I don't want to struggle with this. I don't want to wrestle with this. Or we look at it and say, well, maybe that's not really what God meant. And we start twisting it and contorting it into things that God really didn't mean it to say. And really the worst part about it is that sometimes, which is the good thing, we take it on faith. God, I don't understand this yet. Maybe one day I'll understand. Maybe I won't understand until I get to eternity. But the issue comes along when someone who doesn't understand Jesus, doesn't understand the character, doesn't understand all the questions that they're wrestling with, and they come to us and they say, how does this fit with your Jesus? How does this fit with your idea of a loving and kind? How does this fit with God is all-knowing? How does this fit with all these things that you tell me about God, and yet this part of the Bible seems to not work? Many times, you know what happens in churches? We say, well, just don't, don't read that. Don't worry about it. Don't ask questions. Just go ahead and shove it under the rug. That's one of those tough things that we don't really want to deal with. And you want to know what ends up happening to most people? You start getting embittered and tangled up inside because you're wrestling with something that God has brought to your attention and you're trying to figure out what to do. But when it's shoved under the rug, what ends up happening is it gets more and more and more tangled up until all of a sudden you can't hide it anymore and it seems to knot you up inside. You ever met people who aren't good at expressing their emotions? You know that psychologically, if you don't actually engage your emotions, and I don't mean just the happy ones and the good ones, I mean 
all your emotions. If you don't engage with them, not just ignore them, not just put them off to the side, not just say, well, I just need to get over it. If you don't actually lean into your emotions, find out why you feel that way. Understand why this is going on. What ends up happening is they start nodding up. And they start getting a little bottled up inside. And eventually what happens, even the good emotions, happiness, joy, excitement, love, starts getting tangled up with anger, disappointment, frustration. And all of a sudden, the only way that it can express itself, even on a good day, is by exploding in rage. When we do that with the Bible, what ends up happening is we get ourselves so knotted up that the only way it ends up exploding is in bitterness because we have an attitude. Well, God, you didn't make yourself known to me. You didn't explain it to me. Nobody's interested in being honest with me that maybe they don't know it either. And it ends up making us embittered because maybe God doesn't want to know me. Maybe God doesn't want to talk to me. Maybe God doesn't want me to understand. And if we don't ever actually take a moment to look at the Bible, when it makes us uncomfortable, not necessarily all the time when it's confronting with sin, I get that that makes us uncomfortable. I'm talking about the parts that make us uncomfortable because we can't figure out how it fits, but it's still there. When we come to those parts, rather than running from them, rather than shoving them off to the side, we look at them and say, God, I don't know, but maybe at some point you're going to help me understand. This is not a conversation of you've got to know the answer now. This is a conversation of an honesty statement saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. And when you show it to me, maybe then I'll get it. But I'm not just going to pretend that it doesn't exist. My best most formative years. I did go to a Bible college, and that place was wonderful. They taught me how to baptize people, how to drown them underwater. If they're bigger than you and taller than you, which is everybody, uh, how to go ahead and baptize them so I don't get pulled under with them, how to do communion and all those other things. But the best parts had nothing to do with class. It was when I'd come home on the weekend, and my mom would be up at about 1 a.m. doing her her lesson that she was going to teach on Sunday, and I'd sit down there at the table, and I'd look at her, Mom, what about this in the Bible? And she wouldn't look at me and say, well, just get over it. I don't understand it. You don't understand it. Just suck it up, and God is God, and deal with it, which is an answer I've heard many churches give before. Maybe not in those words. They've made it sound a little bit nicer. No, she would look at me and begin to walk with me through it. Sometimes it was, J.J., I don't, I don't really know. Let's walk through this together. And what would end up happening is I got the opportunity to understand how God will teach someone things. I didn't get all my questions answered, but I remember being up till 2, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning as my mom and I would just navigate these questions. Mom, this doesn't seem to make sense. I don't know what to do with this. Well, let's find out what it fits with the rest of the Bible because the Bible can't implode on itself. Either it's all God or it's none of God. Either it's all his word or it's none of his word. And so today we are going to deal with Numbers chapter 23, Starting in verse 18, go back just a little bit into 17, not much. And Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken? Then Balaam took up his oracle and said, arise up, Balak, hear and listen to me, son of Zippor. Here's the verse we're focusing on. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do or has he spoken and will he not Make it good. Preacher, that doesn't sound so bad. It means that God is a God of his word. He keeps his promises. What he says he's going to do, he's going to do. Here's the problem with that verse and why it seems a little bit frustrating. Number one, because most of the time in life, we read what the Bible has to say, and then we go out and live, and life seems to do everything it can to disagree with that. We are going through life. I don't know if anybody's noticed inflation is kind of difficult. It's difficult to stay within a budget nowadays. And the Bible says that God's, if you tithe... 
he'll rebuke the devourer. And sometimes I look at my bank account, and Christine and I have been tithing on everything that comes in, and then we give an offering wherever God asks us to, and we look at the bank account, and we look at the credit card debt, and all of a sudden we start realizing, God, it looks like it's being devoured. And we go back to the Bible, and it says, but God is a man of his word. He'll make sure these things come to, if if enemy comes in to devour, I will make sure that he does not. God, anybody felt like that? God, you promised. Where's the promise at? Money's a really easy one because all of us have to use it. God, you promised that if I follow you, there'd be peace, and it feels like my life is in chaos. God, you promised that if I was with you, there would be joy, and it feels like all there is is pain. God, you promised, on and on. We read through the Bible all these promises, and then we see this part where it says God is not a man, that he should lie, or that he should change his mind. And yet we see life doing everything it can to rip apart all the promises. There's one side of it. Here's the other side of it. This is the part that really messes me up. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man, that he should change his mind. I like when he says that until all of a sudden you have Moses up on the mountain with God. This is just one example. I'll give you a couple of them before we go. Moses up on the mountain of God. He just took the Ten Commandments and smashed the golden calf. In frustration, he took what God wrote, used it as a weapon, crushed the golden calf, then goes back up on the mountain after he's done doing everything. And God looks at Moses and says, Moses, I'm so frustrated. I'm so fed up with Israel. I'm going to kill all of them, and I'll start over with you. You'll be the one that everything comes out of. It'll still be Abraham's seed because I promised Abraham he'd be the father of many nations, but rather than it being Jacob and Israel, I'll use you, Moses. And Moses looks at him and says, God, don't do that. God, please don't do it. If you're going to go ahead and get rid of Israel, kill me too. I don't want to be around if that's going to be the case. Just go ahead and remove me. Now, God promised that Israel, you'd be the nation that comes from Abraham. And now all of a sudden he's looking at Moses and saying, Moses, I'm going to go ahead and use you because the real promise was to Abraham. And then Moses, don't do that, God. Please change your mind. Wait, I thought God doesn't change his mind. Let's go to another one, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a fun one. Abraham's little nephew, Lot, is in Sodom and Gomorrah living there. God comes to him and says, you see those cities over there, Abraham? I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to remove them off the face of the map. And Abraham, knowing his cousin or his nephew is over there, says, hold on, God. If you can find 50 people who love you, will you spare the city? And God says, if 50's there, I'll go ahead and leave it alone. And then Abraham says, what about if you find 40? And he says, if I find 40, I'll go ahead and leave it alone. Seems like God's changing his mind a lot all of a sudden. If you find 30, now what? If you find 20, Abraham negotiates him all the way down to 10. God says, if I find 10, I won't destroy it. That sounds like changing your mind. God, I thought you don't change your mind. What what do I, God, you don't change your mind, and here you are changing your mind left and right. God, you said that once you speak, that's how it is, and yet you've spoken all these promises and blessings, and all I see in my life is the opposite. What in the world do we do? Because life is not generous enough to say, listen, I didn't really mean to do these bad things in your life. The word of God is still true. Don't worry about that. No, life comes in as a bastion of hell to steal, kill, and destroy, to do whatever it can to subvert the promises of God, to contort everything so that it becomes so confusing that we feel so lost so that we can't figure out whether up is down left is right and it leaves us in a place wondering what can we even trust with God so what do we do with God changing his mind when he says he doesn't change his mind what do we do with when he says once I've spoken it that's how it's going to be and yet life seems to disagree with it let's start with this one God changing his mind God you said you don't change your mind what in the world is happening here 
let's go ahead and say this. The Bible is accurate. God does not change his mind. So what's really happening when we're on the mountain with Moses? What's really happening when we're down on the hill with Abraham looking at Sodom and Gomorrah? If God does not change his mind, what is happening? Have you ever had two things that you want to do at the same time, but you can only do one? And you look at the circumstances around you, and you make a decision. Based on the circumstances, I will either do A or B. I will not do both of them because they conflict with each other. They cannot both exist at the same time. I can only do one of these based on the circumstances around there. I will either do A or B. God does not change his mind. Many times what ends up happening is God comes to a situation. Where he says, if something doesn't change, this is what I'm going to do. But if something does change, then I'll do this instead. It's not a change of mind. It is not a change of heart with God. It is a dichotomy that he presents to his children. You want to know how you get to see the change that God, when he decides instead of doing a curse, he's going to do a blessing? When his children come to him and ask. What do I mean? Anybody have kids? Had kids? Little kids? Back when they were nice and fun? Before they could talk? I like naps. Wendy, don't nod your head so much about that. <laughs> I like naps. I like in the middle of the day if I can sneak off and throw myself. It's great when Christina is off work for the day because the kids love her more than me, and so I'll just slink back into the bedroom, and she'll be like, where did Dada go? And I'll be hiding under the blanket, and I'm so small, I'll just look like a pillow under there, and I can get away with something. But Judah loves to play games with Dada. I like naps a lot. I can't nap and play board games with Judah. It's just not going to work. And so when I get ready to go do something, sometimes Judah will come up to me and he'll start tugging on me. Or he'll come in front of me and he'll put his hands together. And I hate when he does this because it works most of the time. Not all the time. I'm becoming colder and more callous as he gets older and can talk more. But still has some of the cuteness factor in there where he runs up to me with both hands together and just puts his hands down by his waist and goes... The biggest bottom lip. I don't know how they figured out how to do that. And he bats his eyes. He tries to make them as big as dinner saucers. He begins to make tears come to the front so that they gloss over just enough. Not so that a tear comes down, but so that it looks like a little puppy dog in a cartoon. And then after he's done all the looks, he says, Dada, can you please play Catan with me? And now I'm faced with, am I a terrible human by saying no to such an adorable child? Or do I give in? What I want to do is go take a nap. The problem is a child that I love very, very much has just come up to me and made a request of me that fits with my personality, that fits with my character. Because I like playing games with him. I don't like losing to him, which happens most of the time. But I like, and I don't let him win, by the way, which is embarrassing that a six-year-old is skilled at a board game that I taught him. And I lose to him more often than not. But in my character, I like rest, but I also love my son, and I love spending time with him and playing board games. And when all of a sudden I'm on my way to do something that doesn't fit with what my child wants, but my child comes up to me and makes a request, what it does is it doesn't change my mind on what I want to do. What it does is it changes the 
course of actions I will take. See, the problem is that when we read the Bible, we think, God, you don't change your mind. So once it's done, it's set in stone. Many times, God is not looking for us to change his mind. Many times, God is looking for us to touch his heart so that we can change the course of actions he's about to take to get us to where he wants us to go. God's mind is already made up. He loves you, and there's nothing that can change that. God's mind is already made up. He wants to bless you, and there's nothing you can do that can change that desire. God's mind is already made up. He will hold sin accountable. God's mind is already made up. He will always be with you. The question is, what part of his mind are you going to experience? What are the actions you're going to experience from him? Because until the child goes up to the father and says, Daddy, can I please? His actions remain unchanged. We don't change the mind of God. We don't change the heart of God. What we do is we get to change the experiences we have with God. Because he already wants to love you, and he already wants to bless you. He already wants to bring you close. He already wants to lift you up. He already wants to let you know that you are the head and not the tail. He already wants you to know that you are blessed and highly favored. He already wants you to know that he has his eyes on you day in and day out. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro. He who watches over you does not sleep, nor does he rest. He will make sure the sun does not harm you by day, nor the moon harm you by night. The question has nothing to do with God. Something bad's about to happen. How do I change your mind? The question has everything to do with God, how do I touch your heart so that I experience a different avenue of this? You want to know how you touch the heart of God? Let's look at Moses real fast. Moses, I'm going to kill all of Israel. I don't like them anymore. God, they're your people. What do you mean you're going to kill them? I don't want to spend time with them anymore. They frustrate me. I'm done. I'll start over with you, Moses. What does Moses do? He says, Lord, if you're going to do that, make sure history doesn't even remember me. Because if you're going to remove your children, I don't want to be remembered because of all the wonderful things you did in Egypt. Did you really bring us out here so that it could look like you reneged on your promise? Did you really bring us out here so that it could make it look like you can't do what you said you were going to do? Have you ever tried that with someone? When they said they were going to do something and you start putting it a different way. I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. Yeah, but it doesn't look like that to everybody. Well, I don't care what everybody thinks. I thought you do care what it. Did you know that God sometimes likes us to remind him what he said? We think that when we go to God, God, can I have, and that's the end of it. No, what God likes the most is when you look through his word. And if you need something from him, say back to him what he's already said. Let's go ahead and have fun with the part now. God, why does it seem like you made all these promises and yet none of them seem to be coming about? I like how James put it. He says, Elijah was a man like anybody else. Now, if you don't know anything about Elijah, if you haven't read the Bible, if you haven't read over these stories or you don't remember these stories, let me just give you a couple of things. Elijah is the one who went on top of a mountain and he had a sacrifice battle. He said, if your God's real, then he'll go ahead and set your sacrifice on fire. You don't get to spark it. You don't get to set it on fire. If my God's real, then he'll set it on fire. And so he looks at about 400 pastors and says, if the God you serve is real, 
Make it happen. And I'll be over here by myself, and if my God's real, he'll make it happen. So they go ahead and they spend all day. From sun up to sundown, they're singing their praise and worship songs. They're jumping. They're lifting their hands. They're doing all these things to try and get their God to respond, and nothing. So then Elijah gets his turn. And before he goes ahead and asks God to set the altar on fire, he says, let me make sure nobody can second guess what's about to happen. Let me make sure that nobody can second guess that I'm not pulling tricks, but that this is really God. So instead, he digs this giant trench around his altar, and he goes and gets so much water and dumps it on the sacrifice so that the sacrifice, the wood, the kindling, so much so is soaked that there is a pool around the base of it. It's very difficult to light wet wood on fire. You ever done that? It is infuriating. I hated going camping with my dad. JJ, go find me kindling. I'd go and rip something off, and I'd bring it back to him. He'd say, that's wet. I said, it's dry. That's wet. It's dry. And he'd rip it open, and all of a sudden, it'd be damp inside. And I'd look at him, and how did you know? He said, because I know what it looks like. So I'd have to go and find more kindling, and I'd bring it back to him. He said, that's wet. That's dry. That's wet. I'd, and I'd get so mad at my dad. I'd say, just light it on fire. He'd say, you light it on fire. And so I'd sit there with the match or whatever, and my hand would start getting burnt because it wouldn't catch fire. It's difficult to light something wet on fire. So Elijah goes and prays after he saturated this thing, and all of a sudden God sends down fire from heaven, and the thing ignites. That's pretty impressive. Then all of a sudden Elijah decides he's going to have a race, and so he tucks in his cloak, and he outruns a horse on foot. Now that's impressive. I'm not very fast, mostly because I don't have a large stride because I'm fairly short. I'm not built for running long distances or at speed, but Elijah, even if he was tall, I don't think you're seeing Hussein Bolt outrun a horse in a foot race. Then Elijah, let's go ahead and have a talk about this. He goes into a town where there's a famine going on. This woman is about to die, and he looks at her and says, feed me first. Don't worry about anything else. Feed me first, and then we'll go ahead and worry about you. She says, I've only got enough for my son and I to go ahead and, and eat, and then we're going to die. He says, don't worry about you. Don't worry about your son. Feed me first. I would have knocked him senseless if he said that to me, by the way. One thing to ask me to be hungry, another thing to ask my son to be hungry. She feeds him first, all of a sudden, for the entire rest of the famine, that thing never runs out of flour so that she can keep making bread every single day. Her son and she were the most fattened people in the middle of a time when there was no food. Why am I telling you all these stories about Elijah? Because James comes to this part in the Bible where he says, Elijah was a man like anybody else. And when Elijah told it not to rain, all of a sudden it didn't rain. You understand that means you can go outside if the conditions are right and look at God and tell God he's not going to let it rain. Not go to God and say, God, I'd like you to not make it rain or God, I need you to make it rain. You can go outside and look at God and say, God, it doesn't rain. In fact, even when Elijah does that, he walks up to the king. We've never seen him before, by the way. Just some random guy, rugged and ragged, running into the court of a king, looks at the king and says, Ahab, no rain till I say. And that sounds like the words of a lunatic. Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say. How do you get by with that? How, I would have been so terrified. I would have been like, God, I forgot to ask you. Is it okay if it doesn't rain now that I just said it? I shot my mouth off. Can you make it so that I don't look like a complete fool in this scenario? He doesn't even bother to go back in and check with God about it. Well, maybe he prayed before he went there. He did not. I guarantee you. You want to know how I know he didn't pray before he went over there? Because what Elijah did is he reached back into the book of Second Chronicles where this man named Solomon is building a temple to God. And Solomon completes this temple. And when it's done, God comes down and talks to Solomon. 
and he says, I'm going to bless this land. I'm going to bless you. But if, if there's ever a time where Israel stops worshiping me, if there's ever a time where they stop loving me, I will withhold the rain. Want to know why Elijah didn't check in with God? Because Israel at the time had stopped worshiping God. They stopped worshiping him and exalting him. They decided to run to other things. And Elijah didn't need to go check in with God because he'd already read what God said. And so he walked into the king's court and said, here's the deal. No rain. How can you get by with that? Because God already said it. Elijah just called it into account. You want to know why sometimes it seems like God has made promises that you don't get to experience? You want to know why sometimes it seems like God has made promises in his word to you that you don't get to experience? Because you're not calling him to account. Preacher, how can I do that? I love when the Bible says, prove me. God doesn't say it a lot, but when he does, he says, if something's happening in your life, That is inconsistent with my word. And you know my word. You have the right to walk into my throne room. Look me in the eyes and say, God, here's what you said. When's it going to happen? I'm not God. Thank goodness. That's very obvious, by the way, that I'm not God. But there have been times I've made promises to Judah. And it's getting on in the day. And it's getting late, and it doesn't seem like what I said is going to happen. And I might have even forgotten about it. Now, I'm not saying God forgets. Judah will walk up to me and say, Dad, can we do this? And I say, well, no, we can't do that right now. It's getting late. And he'll look at me and say, but you said, Dad. Christina has come home late sometimes and seen me there at the dinner table past Judah's bedtime playing Catan with him. And she'll look at me and say, what in the world is going on? And I'll say, I had made a promise earlier in the day, and he called me to account on the words I had given. Do you understand that God, sometimes when he tells you things, is waiting for you to remind him? Preacher, I thought he doesn't forget his promises. He does not. The question is, do you remember them? Sometimes the reason we miss out on what God wants to give us is because God is only going to do it when you remember what he said. Preacher, how am I supposed to remember everything God has said? Spend time with him. How are you supposed to know what he said about you if you've never spent time with him? How are you supposed to know what he thinks about you if you've never spent time with him? How are you supposed to know what promises he's made about you if you never spend time with him? How are you supposed to know what he's got for your life if you never spend time with him? Preacher, I feel like my life is in chaos. God promised me peace. Here's the question. Have you actually gone and looked at how God gives peace? Have you actually looked at how God wants to give you peace? Have you actually looked at what that means? Because sometimes when God gives peace, it doesn't mean the rest of the world's going to stop spinning. It just that means that somehow, even though everything going crazy around you, you still stay the same in a place of calmness, and yet everything else is falling apart. Preacher, I feel like God promised me joy, but instead I'm waking up every morning and I'm crying, and I'm going to bed crying, and everything feels like it's falling apart. Just because God promised joy does not mean that life stops being painful. What it means is that he'll sustain you in the middle of pain and lift you up because he still loves you, even though you still feel sorrow in your heart. Preacher, what am I supposed to do when I feel all this anxiety in my life? When it feels as though I can't get my mind to calm down? I thought God promised peace. When's the last time you went to the Bible and looked at the part where it said whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are holy, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are worthy of good report. Think on these things and the God of peace will send his grace to you. We, 
God, where's your peace? Whatsoever things are good. Whatsoever things. God, where is the calmness? Whatsoever things are good. Whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are holy. And then the God, God, I don't understand why there's chaos everywhere. When you go and stand with the Lord, he will be a firm foundation around. He will be a fortress. He will be a strong tower. The question has nothing to do with God. Are you a liar or are you a man of your word? The question has everything to do with, am I going to find out what the promise was so that I can call him to account when my life is in chaos? Not so that I can manipulate God. Not so that I can belittle God. Not so that I can make God feel like he's a liar. But so that everybody understands that when I go into his courts as a son or as a daughter of God, I get to walk in there and look at him and say, Daddy, you promised I need. Where's it at? Out of curiosity, if anybody in here saw me promise Judah something, he ran up to me in frustration. Not mean, not cruel, no malice, but he's legitimately frustrated because I haven't done the promise yet. And he's legitimately crying and sad because I haven't done what I promised him. And he comes up to me and all the tears running down his face and he looks at me and says, Dad, you promised. Would anybody in here look at him and say, what an irresponsible parent to let his child act like that? I can't believe that child would talk back to his father. Would anybody actually, if you heard me make the promise to him, and then he comes running up to me and says, Dad, you promised. How many of you are going to look at him and say, what an ill-behaved child? No, what you're going to see is you're going to see a son who has a good enough relationship with his dad to say, Dad, I remember you said this, and I know you love me enough to keep your promise. And I'm frustrated and I'm sad because it doesn't feel like you're about to keep your promise. But here's what you said, Dad. Where's the promise? You know how excited I am every time he reminds me of the promises I've made him? When do I get excited when he reminds me? Because it means he wants to be around me. If he's reminding me of what I've said, not only has he been around me, it means he wants to keep being around me. You want to know why God likes you reminding him? Of the promises he's given to you. Because it lets him know. That not only have you been around him. But you like being around him. We've got this idea. That when it comes to God. That we have to read our Bible. So that we look good to him. That we have to go to church. So we look good to him. That we have to tithe. So that we look good to him. That we have to make sure that we're nice and kind to people. So that we look good to him. It's got nothing to do with that. You want to know why I read my Bible? So that I can know what he sounds like. You want to know why I pray? Because I like talking to him. Ever talk to someone on the phone you can't stand? It just drags on and on. And on, like this sermon, it's almost over, I promise. I can't stand talking on the phone. I don't like it even when Christina asks me to talk on the phone. But when we were first dating, I didn't have a problem with that. We'd be on the phone for an hour, and I'd have no problem. Then there would be times where someone would want to call and talk to me, and I'd feel like we were on the phone for 10 hours, and when we were done, they finally hung up and released me back to my life from the jail cell that was their boring conversation. I would look at the phone, and we were on the phone for a minute and 20 seconds. I was like, dear God, this must be what the time passes like in hell. 
It's just that that's probably what hell is. It is having to have the most boring conversations with the people you like the least for all eternity. I like praying because I like talking to God. I like reading my Bible because I like finding out what he looks like. I like going to church because there's times where I'm so messed up and I'm having such a rough time that I need other people who love God and love me to be the ones that lift me up because I'm too exhausted to do it myself. Did you know that I need you guys? I don't need you guys to pay my salary. It's nice. I like it. Please keep tithing. I enjoy paying my electric bill. But I need you because there's times where I'm so messed up and I'm so bent out of shape and I've been so beaten down by hell that I need someone to lift me up even though I'm the preacher. You know why I like going back there and eating with you guys? Because sometimes I get frustrated on Sundays that the only time I get to talk to you is about the two minutes when you walk in the door, and that's about it, and then you go about your week. I love Fourth Sunday Diner because it's a moment where I am at church with people that I know love God, love me, I love God, I love them, and I get to just rest with them. I don't have to worry about, well, here's how you should live your life, here's what the Bible says. I don't have to think about preacher, here's my question, and I have a crisis in my life. And I'm fine with all those things. You feel free to interrupt me back there if that's where you're at. But I like these things when we go bowling or when we have Fourth Sunday diner or when we have game night or when we just do something together because what I get to do is I get to rest and just be with my friends. I don't do these things to make me look good to God. I do it just because I like being around him. And the more I'm around him, the more I hear what he says. And the more I hear what he says, when something comes into my life that would cripple me, I get to run back to him and say, Daddy, you promised Daddy, you said. Daddy, I need. Daddy, you already made the promise. Where's the promise? And sometimes it might not show up the way I want or the way I think it ought to or even in the time frame I want. But I will say this. There has never been a time in my life, even though I am young, there has never been a time in my life where I have been in a place that my life is being contrary to the word of God. Not how I was living. I'm not saying I was sin and rebellion. I mean the way life is working out is contrary to how God said it would go. There has never been a time where that has been happening. And I've run to God and said, God, you promised these things. This is what my life looks like. And it doesn't look like what you promised. And at that moment, I don't understand why, but it is as though reality begins to slowly reorient itself to what God has promised me. I wish it always looked the same. Good night. You've heard my testimony where Christina and I, when we, before we got married, I was making 60000 We came back from our honeymoon, I was making 5000 a year. That's a big difference. We lived at what is economically poverty level. And we kept tithing on basically nothing. And I went to God and I said, God, you said if I tithe, you said I have clothes, you would say I have a place to live, you said I have food. I'm tithing, we're making 5000 a year, what in the world do I do? God, you said if I tithe, it's only $500 a year I tithe, but you said if I tithe, I wouldn't be devoured. And then all of a sudden what ends up happening is that all of a sudden people that I'm not telling that I'm in a place of poverty start showing up. And I'm not saying that we lived in poverty because I have no clue how God did it. People started showing up with food. Hey, we bought you two weeks of groceries. Why? Who told you? I wouldn't say those things, but that's what I'm thinking. About. Who told you I was broke? 
I didn't tell anybody. I'm too embarrassed to tell anybody. I just told God I tithe. And all of a sudden, I got two weeks of groceries in my refrigerator. And then all of a sudden, those groceries start going away, and I start looking at everything. The bank account's still in negative. The credit card debt is still kind of going up because I've got to live somehow. And then all of a sudden, someone comes to me and says, hey, we want to take you out to lunch today. Not to McDonald's. Let's go to a steakhouse. And I was like, I love steak. I can't afford it right now. But I love. I would have preferred now. Had God said, all right, let's just give you back the 60000 a year income. Let's just go ahead and fix that. It was, a, it was a monetary fluke. God, you said I wouldn't be devoured. He said, you're right. All of a sudden, there's groceries in my fridge. Now, for a little while, I was mad. God, I didn't want the food. I wanted the money so that I could buy the food, and then I could buy other things that I wanted. He said, I didn't say what the blessing would look like. I just told you I'd make sure that you wouldn't be devoured. I had people putting gas in my car for me. I had people buying me groceries. I had people giving us just gift cards so we could go out to eat on and on for that entire year as I made about 5000 for the whole year. As we're paying for Christina's rest of her college out of our pocket. I don't know how God's math works, but somehow we paid for it. Keep in mind, when you call God to account for a promise... It might not look the way you want it to. It took me about a month to figure out that God was keeping his promise that I called him to account for. You might go to God and say, God, I need peace. It might not look the way you think it's supposed to look. God, I need joy. It might not look the way you think it's supposed to look. God, I need you to settle things down. It might not look how you think it's supposed to look. But make no mistake, when you go to God and say, God, you promised, where's it at? He will show up every time. God is not a man that he should change his mind. He doesn't change his mind. He's waiting for you to come and touch his heart so that he can give you a different experience. The words that God speaks is how it will be. When your life looks different than what God has said, it's really not an issue of God's a liar. It's an issue of waiting for you to remind him what he promised you.